Let's open our Bibles to the little epistle of Jude. And let's see what the Lord has to say to us from this very sober epistle. It is a harsh epistle because it describes severe judgment upon the enemies of the gospel. It gives us a warning of impostors that creep into churches. It tells us about them in verse 4, and this is the reason for the epistle of Jude. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reason for the epistle. It was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith because there are men crept in unawares that are ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness by their carnal, casual, compromising lives. What we are going to do is take up at verse 8 and we want to learn some of the character traits of these wicked men. We want to learn these character traits so that we will be warned that we should not have any of these traits in our lives. We want to read about these traits so that we can identify them in the lives of others. And we want to see God's horrible judgment upon such men. If you ask yourself, why are we going to have a praise and thanksgiving and singing service in the second assembly with such a topic picked for the first assembly, it's because both go hand in hand in the Word of God. We rejoice with trembling. And yet I want to make it even better than that. The great judgment that we're about to read about in Jude 1, 8 through 16, if we make it that far, is not a threat against the righteous. It is to comfort the righteous, knowing what God is going to do to the wicked. It is to encourage the righteous to remain faithful, lest they find themselves in that camp like Israel, that having been delivered out of Egypt... They believed not and were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 5. The severity of the judgment of God is very real here. And it's no longer preached. They used to call them fire and brimstone preachers. They used to ridicule them when I was a little boy. But there were some. There were quite a few of them. Now there's hardly any left that would take a text like Jude and preach it as it should be preached. It's a lesson to discover and avoid traits. Discover them and see them in others, because we're to measure others by their fruits. But we don't want any of these fruits that we're about to read of. This is to comfort the righteous, that God will judge the wicked. This is to warn the wicked that God is going to judge them, lest they repent. Verse 8. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers... Defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. There are two lessons here in verses 8 through 10 about the character traits of these wicked men. 
First, they despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Now, first, first they are filthy dreamers that defile the flesh, and we dealt with that several weeks ago. We want that first, because that's first in the first half of verse 8. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. Likewise, and also, compare them to the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah that are in verse 7. And our lesson a few weeks ago was that we need to fight for modesty and virtue in thought and speech, attire, actions, music, entertainment, friends, social, wherever we go socially. We want to fight for morality. We want to fight for virtue. We want to fight for virginity. We want to fight for purity before marriage. We want to fight for holy marriages in order that we do not find ourselves in the same category. We do not want to be those that fantasize about adultery because the Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. The Bible says, why then should I think upon a maid? Job 31.1. The Bible says, lest not after her beauty in thine heart. Proverbs chapter 6. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew chapter 5. Likewise, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. They have loose sexual standards because they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. God loves you just the way you are, Sodomite. That's what's preached in many pulpits, and we totally deny that. That is not taught in the Bible. God hates Sodomites, and He's going to burn every single one up in the lake of fire that is not saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like He burned up the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it tells us in verse 7 that they were set forth for an example. Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the first rule that we want to have is we want to keep ourselves sexually pure in our souls, hearts, minds, marriages, families, and church. Lord, help us. The second thing we want to learn is in the second half of verse 8, that these wicked men despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Dominion is authority. This is primarily civil government. They despise it. They resent being told what to do by government. They resent presidents that they don't agree with. There's never going to be a president that you altogether agree with. Just like there's never been a husband that a woman's altogether agreed with every choice he's made, or a parent that a child has agreed with every choice that parent's made. We don't despise dominion. We love dominion. Thank you, Lord, for our government. Thank you, Lord, for our parents. Thank you, Lord, for our bosses on the job. Thank you for our husbands. Thank you for our pastors that have taught us, led us, and ruled over us. Thank you for them. We don't despise dominion. We don't speak evil of dignities. And it was two weeks ago that we went over some of these points. (coughs) A simple rule in measuring doctrine is to reject any disrespect of dominion. We want to love God-given authority. The Bible makes it very plain that if you resist... Civil government, you resist the ordinance of God. And two weeks ago, we were reminded that when you resist government, you resist the office God created, you resist the man God put in the office He created, and you resist the present state of that man that's in the office that God created. Because all of those are under the sovereign government of God. And if you want to know the truth, it's still the best place to live in the world, even if you may see some faults, weaknesses, shortcomings in our present president. It's still a great place to live. You're still able to be right here this morning and to worship God. 
you're still able to jump in your vehicle and drive 7,600 miles. And how many police barricades were you stopped at and your vehicle searched? None. Even though you were carrying beautiful women all over this country, no one stopped you. They were all out to protect you. All out to give you liberty. We live in a blessed nation. And we get to assemble in here and call a sodomite a sodomite. Praise the Lord and thank Him for that. We do not despise dominion. We want to honor parents because the Bible tells us to. If you have a father and a mother, you should be doing what you can to honor them. He's attached a great reward to it. It's a blessing. If you have a husband, you should reverence your husband. If you have a master, (coughs) you should obey him. Nick, that even includes Adam. If you have a master on the job... You want to obey Him. You don't want to answer again according to Titus chapter 2 verses 9 through 10. You want to show all good fidelity. You don't want to engage in any purloining. That's small thefts on the job. The Bible's plain about all these things. We don't despise dominion. We love our masters. Even when they're froward masters. It's when you've got a master who's in a bad mood. Or he's just a bad master in a mood. You're supposed to obey Him. And you're supposed to do it cheerfully because that is pleasing to God. And that's the only way that you can do something that is thankworthy. If you have a great and gentle and good master, what can you do that is thankworthy toward God? How can you show your conscience toward God? It's impossible. Just like when you have a loving, faithful, kind, consistent husband. You wives can't even show real submission. You need an ornery, picky, overbearing husband. Then you can show the real character of a woman. Despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. We want to watch for how someone speaks about authority. If you can find them speaking evil against authority or chafing against authority, you've got a spiritual problem because they will also chafe against God's word and they will treat it lightly just like they do the authority he has imposed on them. I give you a warning from the word of God. It's right here. We don't want any of that in our homes. Children, you want to be encouraging your siblings to love and honor your parents. Sarah, you should always be provoking your younger sisters to love and honor your parents. Because you want to teach them that great commandment God gave about honoring parents, thereby good can come to the whole family. Every wife in here should be encouraging the other wives to submit and reverence their husbands. This is your duty. As a church, we should be doing this because we don't despise dominion. We delight in God's dominion. He has ordained these five spheres of authority. And the older women should be teaching the younger women to love their husbands and to obey their husbands. That's what should be taught in this church. This is what should be taught in every church of saints. For you women to all love your husbands. Everyone on the job should be encouraged to be that faithful employee that Titus chapter 2 talks about. We don't want to speak evil of dignities. The Bible warns us that if you curse the king in your heart, a bird of the air will carry that message and it will bring punishment upon your head. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 20. It says not even to curse the king in your thoughts. It says not to curse the rich in your bedchamber. Because God will see it even in your bedroom. And you will be punished for it. Righteously so. Without authority, there is anarchy. Total chaos and confusion. There is only imperfect authority in this world. There is no master, husband, parent, pastor, 
or civil magistrate that's perfect. But imperfect authority is far better than no authority. God will take care of the imperfect authority. And it's good for us. It teaches us a little humility. It teaches a little true submission. Let's think about David for a moment. Did, did David, the man after God's own heart, did he know how to submit to authority? We spoke about it two weeks ago. And last week we spoke about it. That David had many occasions to kill King Saul. Now King Saul had lied to him, deceived him, and tried to kill him on numerous occasions. Even though David was his most faithful and helpful servant. But when King Saul was lying asleep at David's feet, which the Lord arranged by his providence, and his nephew said, David, look at the Lord. Is the Lord sweet, brother? Is the Lord sweet? He's put your enemy in your hands. Let me smite him once. I won't need the second blow. This is all in the Bible. Let me smite him at once and pin him to the ground right where he's at. And David said, how could I touch the Lord's anointed? Listen, if you'd have been in that situation, you'd have said, I'm the Lord's anointed because Samuel anointed me king of Israel 15 years ago. The Lord, circumstantially, has brought Saul to my feet. This man has tried to kill me. This is really self-defense. You'd have done all that reasoning and you'd have said, go for it, Abishai. But David said, how can I touch the Lord's anointed? David's heart smote him because he cut off a little bit of his garment to show Saul the next morning, do you know how close I was to you last night? Look down and see where this came from. And King Saul looked down and realized that David had been right next to him while he was sleeping that night and could have killed him. But David wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. And the Bible tells us that David's heart smote him because he had messed up his clothes. How is that for an attitude toward authority? Let's work at it, brethren. Because the less you are of a belly worshiper, the more honor and respect you're going to give rulers. The more you are a belly worshiper, the less honor and respect you'll give rulers. It's just a little rule of thumb for your life. That's why it's in here. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh and despise dominion. These wicked men that turn the grace of God into lasciviousness don't have proper respect for authority. And there are five spheres of authority, and we want to have proper respect for all of them. Don't you even set light about your parents. Don't joke about your parents. Don't jest about your parents. Don't roll your eyes at your parents. Don't say light things about your parents. Because according to the Word of God, Deuteronomy 27, 16, Cursed is the man that setteth light by his parents. And all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Cursed be a man who sets light by his parents. Powerful text. We have verse 9. Yet. Yet. What's the yet there for? Yet is a disjunctive, meaning it's a, it's a conjunction, but it is disjunctive in its purpose. It's showing that verse 9 is set in contrast to verse 8. Right. Verse 8 was, these wicked men despise dominion and speak evil of dignities, yet the angels don't do that. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, Durst not bring against him a railing accusation. 
but said, The Lord rebuke thee. If you'd have been Michael the archangel, what would you have said to the devil if he was disputing with you about where you were hiding Moses' body? This is... Yes. God buried Moses. Do you know why God had to bury Moses? Because they'd have hauled his bones around for 2,000 years and worshipped them. So God buried Moses. And Michael the archangel actually did the job. And the devil fought with Michael the archangel to know where the body of Moses was so he could get Israel to worship it like they did the brazen serpent. What would you have said to the devil? Here's what you'd have said to the devil if you were Michael the archangel. You stinking devil! Go to hell, you stinking devil! That's a railing accusation. Don't you know you're the cursed enemy of God, you stinking devil? That's a railing accusation. To rail is to use opprobrious or inappropriate or unkind speech toward a person. Michael the archangel did not do that. The verse starts off with the word yet. Because in verse 8, these evil men, and we will meet them, the world is full of them, like to yap against government. They like to yap against dignities. Yet, Michael the archangel wouldn't bring a railing accusation against the devil. But said, the Lord rebuke thee. He put it, he took it all off himself and put it on the Lord. And do you know what? When we go to prayer, we can commit all our rulers to the Lord. He'll take care of them. We can pray for the peace of Babylon and live in peace, turning it all over the Lord. He will not forsake us. He heard the cries of Israel that came up under those hard taskmasters, the Egyptians, and he did deliver his people. I hope you see the importance of that yet that begins verse 9 that shows the contrast with these wicked rulers. Isn't that something? No railing accusation against the devil. If Michael the archangel doesn't bring railing accusation against the devil, may I make a suggestion for you? Don't try any railing accusations against the devil. He can twist you inside out in about one second if God were to give him leave. So you ought to say, the Lord rebuke thee if you ever have need to say any such thing. But the best thing to do is, Lord God, my Father in heaven, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, put a hedge of protection about me and keep me safe from the devil. Amen. There is one name before which the devil trembles, and that's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where you ought to put your protection. Don't you try to argue or fight with the devil. You may be a son of God, but you are no match for him until you're in heaven beside the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus Christ is more than a match. They fell and worshipped him when he was on earth. And they certainly fall and worship him now because he's thrown them out of heaven. Because there wasn't room enough in heaven for Jesus Christ and the devil. If we were to turn to Second Peter, and we should... 2 Peter chapter 2 to see Peter's version of this verse. Because remember, 2 Peter chapter 2 is a fraternal twin to the epistle of Jude. We can turn there for commentary. Peter takes it even further. <coughs> Peter takes this point even further. 2 Peter 2, 11 is where I want to read. Verse 10 is comparable to Jude 1, 8. Verse 10 is describing these presumptuous kinds of men, the last half of verse 10, that are self-willed, that are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. We ought to be afraid. Don't tell jokes about our president. Don't tell jokes about our previous president. Don't tell jokes about the previous president. We all had lots of jokes about the previous, previous president, didn't we? 
It involved Monica, didn't we? We had lots of jokes. The world had lots of jokes. We ought to be afraid to speak evil of dignities. We ought to be afraid to bring railing accusations. So that's verse 10 right here. And then it moves into verse 11, like in Jude, verse 8 moved into verse 9. Verse 11, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Them, a plural pronoun. What is the antecedent for the plural pronoun them in verse 11? It's the dignities in verse 10. The angels of heaven do not bring railing accusations against Adolf Hitler's and Mao Zedong's that are on earth. Because they are in positions of authority where God ordained the office, God chose the man, and God let the man be devil-possessed. And to to bring a railing accusation against those authorities is to bring a railing accusation against God. That does not mean we do not identify sin on their part or when they command us to do something that is wrong. Herod rebuked, John the Baptist rebuked Herod for having his brother's wife. Daniel rebuked Nebuchadnezzar and told him, If you've heard me, O king, break off your sins by righteousness this day, that there might be a lengthening of your tranquility. Daniel was very respectful. But he tried to save that king in Daniel chapter 4. But you're not John the Baptist. And you're not Daniel. That's right. And you're not in their presence where they've asked to hear you. Or where you're being confronted about what they're doing. We are little tiny citizens. And we want to give respect. And we want to be afraid to speak evil of dignities. Right. And we want to pattern ourselves after the angels. Don't blow off with some statement about our president. Don't blow off with some statement about our governor. Our governor's just done something wrong. Everyone should know that. But that doesn't mean that we rail on our governor. You've done a few things wrong too, fathers. Do you want your children or wives railing on you for what you've done wrong and bringing it up and telling jokes about you? The angels do not bring railing accusation against them. That is a powerful, powerful point. Men who despise God's word will often despise God's authority. They'll go hand in hand. We want to look for that. We want to resent that. We want to correct that. When we hear another brother in this church making fun of government in any one of five, five spheres, we want to warn them and correct them. We don't want it in our lives. We want to correct it in our children. We better show them an example so that they hear us speaking respectfully about all authority. Get this lesson. The more you despise authority, the closer you are to a belly worshiper because it shows a disrespect for God's ordination of authority. Ultimately, it's God. When Israel rejected Samuel because they wanted a king, God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. He said, Moses, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Right. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. If you resist the power that's of God, you're resisting God himself. Romans chapter 13. Lord, help us. For those of you that are perceptive and are hearing what I'm saying right now, it is a telltale sign when you hear anyone chafing or fighting or resenting authority in any one of the five spheres, it will lead to greater problems. It is a root of bitterness that, is spring, that will spring up and trouble men. We don't want that. Five spheres, never forget them. Parents, 
Husbands, masters, pastors, civil magistrates. Submit and obey in their respective spheres as far as you should. Esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. Pay their taxes. Give tribute to whom tribute is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Custom to whom custom. When we start fighting in that direction, we start turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Because the grace of God that brings us liberty does not allow that liberty to fight against God's ordination of authority. First Peter chapter 2 makes that very plain. Though we have liberty as the sons of God, we never abuse that by fighting against God's authority. The angels have quite a bit of liberty. But they don't bring a railing accusation against the worst rulers on earth. Verse 10 of Jude. Jude 1.10 But these speak evil, these men, who despise dominion and speak evil of dignities, who are not like the angels. Because look at verse 10, it starts off with another disjunctive. But, because the but, the but is there, because verse 10 is set in contrast to verse 9. Verse 9 was telling us how noble the angels are. Even Michael the archangel would not bring a railing accusation. But, as opposed to being like Michael the archangel, these wicked men who like to run their yapper against authority, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. They don't comprehend authority. They don't understand that God ordained the office, God chose the man, and God led the man to be what he is in that office. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. When you hear somebody running our president down, they don't have a clue about what that man has to face every day. Of course we can see things that we might wish were different about him. So what? You have no idea what he has to face every day. He gets up in the morning and has a staff meeting, and his issues are more than whether you're going to have a two-egg omelet or a three-egg omelet. And you are trying to figure out, am I going to use cheddar cheese with my eggs this morning, or am I just going to take them with salt and pepper? Do I want butter on my grits, or am I going to use ketchup on my potatoes? Those are the biggest decisions you face in the morning. Am I going to drive this car to work, or am I going to drive the SUV? Oh, it's so tough. It's very hard. He has a staff meeting, and he's informed of situations, domestic and international, in large numbers, with high levels of classified information you will never know about. And he has to make decisions that the financial, military, economic, domestic, tranquility of this nation depends on. And they have to be doing it all the time. Anything happens in the world of significance, they're woken up in the middle of the night. Do you know what you wake up in the middle of the night for? Because you ate too much pizza. It's, your life is so tough. Anyway, this is why we have verse 10. These speak evil of those things which they know not. That's what I'm trying to illustrate right now. They don't know the ramifications of government. Children go to bed, and they lie in their beds and resent their parents. They've never been a parent. Not even for one hour have they been a parent. They do not understand all the things going through a parent's mind. A parent has spiritual concerns. A parent has budget concerns. A parent has observations about neighbors that the child doesn't even know about. The parent has a hundred things going through their head, and they're lying there at night. How can I save my son? And the son's lying in his bed. Why can't my dad just let me do what I want to do? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Son, turn your brain off before it hurts somebody. Turn your brain off. It's, I'm serious. 
Dads lie there and think about a hundred different things. They've got budget constraints. All you've got is, how much can I eat at one time? Dad's trying to figure out how he can pay for you to eat anything. Every sphere of authority is like that. The wife says, can I go buy this? Please, 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 hubby. Can I go buy this? And the hubby says, no. The little wife that wants to go buy something so badly because the money's burning a hole in her purse, she doesn't know the eight different things that's on hubby's mind. It may be that hubby wants to buy a gun instead of you buying a dress. It may be that hubby got a $250 speeding ticket on the way home from work. You don't know what's on hubby's mind. But hubby has reasons that you should submit to. And I'm, I'm trying to keep you awake. And I'm trying to give you practical applications that everyone in authority has reasons for what they do. And you should submit to them until they say, kiss Buddha. Until they say, kiss Buddha, you submit cheerfully and say, okay, hubby, that's just fine. Thank you for saving me from myself. Why don't you take the money and spend it? My Lord. Now, that would be reverence. I hear an amen. Amen. (laughs) Authority. It's a wonderful thing. God ordained it. The angels practice it. Have you read all the descriptions in the Bible about how they're organized? Principalities, powers, thrones, might, dominion, angels. Spiritual wickedness in high places is not casual sex on Pennsylvania Avenue. Spiritual wickedness in high places is not casual sex in Columbia, South Carolina. Spiritual wickedness in high places are the hierarchies of the angelic world. The fallen devils, principalities and powers, Jesus Christ rules over all of them. They understand authority. They will not bring a railing accusation against the devil because they know the authority of the office God put him in originally. And they know that Jesus Christ is his judge. They will not bring a railing accusation against men on earth in positions of authority that God ordained. We want to be like them. We want to be better than them. We don't want yets and buts written about us. God hates those seeking to change government. Look at Proverbs 24. We are not in the business of changing government. Does that mean you'd have been a Tory if you'd have been here during the Revolutionary War? I very well may have been. You got a problem with that? You'd have been loyal to the King of England? And you wouldn't have joined those anarchists that wanted to throw the tea into the Boston Harbor? It just depends. Lay the circumstances in front of me clearly as if we were living there, and we'll give an answer. If that king of England was trying to dictate the terms of my religion, I'll defy him. If that king of England just wants a tax so that he can build his 13th palace in the countryside of England, I'll pay the tax. Why? Why? Because that king was God's man. If you want to watch a video that we have in our church library, it's called Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell eventually cut the head off the king when he took away their religious liberty in England. But not until. Listen to him before, until that point. He submitted. Proverbs 20, God, didn't, God never raised up Christians to change government, ever. Right. 
we don't care if Christians have been involved in changing government in the past. That's proof of nothing except they had an anarchist heart. We don't change government. God changes government. God sets up kings and puts down kings. We just obey whatever king is there. Show me the Apostle Paul trying to overthrow Caesar. I see the Apostle Paul lifting Caesar up, and I see the Lord Jesus Christ lifting Caesar up. Whose superscription is that on your money? Caesar's. Then render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Proverbs 24, I give you these verses because God has saved us from a great deal of trouble by these and other verses like them. Amen. Proverbs twenty four twenty one. Some of us have been exposed to a whole lot of revolutionary thinking, and thank God we've been saved from it. God never called us to be revolutionaries. Ever. God called us to submit to government. Proverbs twenty four twenty one. My son, fear thou the Lord and the King. And that is the proper order. Fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not meddle with those given a change. Don't you hang around with those who have revolutionary ideas, who, who want to change government, who want to fight government. Don't hang around with them, don't listen to them, don't read their stuff, don't read their junk. For their calamity shall rise suddenly. God will judge them. And who knoweth the ruin of them both? What's the both? Why is the word both there? How are both going to be? Who are the both that are going to be ruined? Those that are given to change and those that meddle with them. Don't even hang around those given to change. (coughs) Don't read their materials. They'll provoke rebellion in you. Enough about that. Let's go to verse 11. Jude 11. Woe unto them. A plural pronoun referring to those in verses 8 through 10. Woe unto them. For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These rebels rebel for various reasons. First of all, Cain. Let's lay hold of this warning. I hope that we communicated a message from God's word already. From verses 8 through 10. Sexual purity is absolutely important. In this generation, we have a great war to fight on it. Right. It's in your homes and your television. It comes in everywhere. It's on billboards. Everyone is looser than they've ever been in the history of the world. We have a war to fight about sexual looseness. Right. Second, about submitting to government and not speaking evil against them in any one of the five spheres of authority. We want to remember that even the angels don't bring railing accusation against wicked human rulers. And that is hard to grasp. We should be afraid to speak evil of dignities. We have three men. We had three categories of men in verses 5, 6, and 7. Already in this chapter, we had Israel that came out of Egypt. They were overthrown in the wilderness. God did not let them see the land of Canaan. We had the angels. They sinned. God reserved them in everlasting chains to judgment. And we had the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, they've gone in the way of Cain. Self-willed compromise of worship. We have the right to change our worship if we want to. Cain changed the worship of God. What did Abel bring? Abel brought the, the fat and the firstlings of his flock. 
He bought the best animals because there was blood going to be shed for the God of heaven to have a proper sacrifice. Cain didn't keep sheep. Cain loved his profession and wanted to honor that profession. And he brought a nice, neat and clean offering of of the product of his field. You know it looked like a Thanksgiving display. Cain brought the best of his field. But God didn't accept Cain's worship. Cain was self-willed. Cain thought that God has to accept it because this is what I do for a living. This is what I get to bring. No, we bring what God wants us to bring. There is a due order that God expects us to follow, and Cain did not do that. And God rejected Cain's offering, and God rejected Cain. It didn't matter that Cain brought the offering to the right God at the right time. It didn't matter that it meant something to Cain. God didn't accept it. It doesn't matter what you think about the Sabbath day. It doesn't matter what you think about praise bands. It doesn't matter what you think about U.S. flags at the front of this auditorium. It doesn't matter what you think about a piano and an organ. Is it the due order that God has called for in His worship? That's That's what we're going to do. That's what we have to do. Cain wouldn't do that. Self-willed compromise. So whenever we see a spirit of willing to fudge things and chafe, well, that doesn't really matter. Well, that doesn't really matter. Yes, they do matter. It didn't really matter to Cain, but it mattered to God. And so a self-willed compromiser. And then he gets angry at God for rejecting his offering. Instead of reflecting on the fact that he should have brought an offering like Abel, he gets mad at God. Then he gets mad at the man who does do it right. Do you know the Bible says that in the perilous times of the last days, Christians will become despisers of those that are good? When, you, when we try to live a holy life and follow the Bible and have the simple worship services that the New Testament describes, those who are not taking that course despise us. Right. Just like Cain despised Abel. What did Abel do wrong? Abel didn't do anything wrong. God accepted Abel. Abel did what was right, but Cain hated him for it and then killed him for it. They despise and they'll hate and they'll murder those that are good. And this is given, even in the New Testament, as an example about Cain. Then when the Lord comes to him and says, where's your brother? What's his attitude like? Am I my brother's keeper? No regard for the people of God. Am I my brother's keeper? Snotty, arrogant, selfish, self-willed attitude of a reprobate. Yes, Yes, you are your brother's keeper. His blood is crying out to me from the ground. You have killed him. And this is what I'm going to do to you. And then he whines about God's judgment, even though he's worthy of it. What a mess that man was in. A self-willed whiner. He wants to do things his way, doesn't want to submit to God's authority, hates those that are good, hates any competition, like the competition from Abel, and resents God for confronting him about it. What's the lesson we can learn by Cain? We want to follow the due order exactly in our worship. We want to love good men that do things right, even if sometimes they put us to shame. And we want to humbly obey any correction that comes our way. That will make us totally different from Cain. Let me say that again. We want to follow the due order exactly. We want to be lovers of good men that do things right, even when it hurts us, because they outshine us by righteousness. And we want to humbly obey correction. God brought correction to Cain, and Cain rejected it. The Lord said to Cain in Genesis 4, 6, and 7, If you'll do well, Cain, you can be accepted. But if you don't, sin lieth at the door. If you don't get things right, right now, Cain, it's going to get worse. Balaam. 
what are we told about Balaam right here in Jude one eleven? There's a there's the word reward mentioned, and there's the word greed mentioned, because Balaam's problem was with money. These are hirelings that get into the ministry. These are those more interested in money than they are the kingdom of heaven. Balaam was for hire. You could go buy Balaam. He wanted to fleece the flock instead of feed the flock. The books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe these men and some of the other minor prophets. This is Balaam. Woe unto them. For these false brethren, these false teachers, fall into three of these categories. They're self-willed men who want to do things their way. Like Cain did. And then despise those that are good. Or they're like Balaam. They're doing it for money. Balaam was without understanding. He was so intent on his greed. Without understanding, he didn't even respond properly when his ass started talking to him. When his ass started talking to him, he just engaged in a conversation with the ass. He should have dropped to his knees and asked the ass for repentance. He should have asked the Lord, what are you trying to say to me, Lord, through this ass? He should have lifted up his eyes and seen the angel that was about to cut his head off. That ass moved moved to the side and crushed his foot against a wall because there was an angel about to kill him. He was without understanding. His greed was driving him. He was without repentance because he kept repeating his sin. He wouldn't humble himself. He was without knowledge. The first time he opened his mouth, out comes a blessing on Israel. So then he, he agrees to do it again. Out comes another blessing. He should have learned that God was only going to bless Israel. And he should have humbled himself and told Balak to go take a walk. He had no morality. Do you know what, he, what happened when he couldn't curse Israel? Because he wanted that money so bad? When he couldn't curse Israel and Balak wasn't going to pay on the contract, he said, I got a better idea. Let me have a meeting in your high school gym with all the girls of Moab. And we'll teach them how to go in to Israel and fornicate with the boys there. And we'll ruin them through fornication. That is what Balaam did. And that is how Balaam got killed. The Lord had him killed in a battle because Phinehas stopped it with his javelin. Then Israel went to battle with Moab and they killed Balaam in battle. But Balaam taught Israel, taught Moab to fornicate with Israel to try to take them off the worship of God because the devil gave him the knowledge that sexual impurity and fornication between the two nations would corrupt God's standard for them. That is a truth. That's the truth about Balaam. What's our lesson? We want to guard all our financial dealings in the house of God, and we want to measure ministries by their treatment of money. We never want to be begging for money. You know, when people write us, write our website, and they say, where, where can I contribute? I write back and I say, we don't want any contributions. Have you found any requests for contributions in the entire website? We're sick of money-grubbing beggars. If you have to have yourself a blessing, then send it to 212 East Standing Springs Road and we'll put it in the general fund of the church. But that man was greedy. And there'll be men that'll be more motivated by money than they are the truth of the gospel. And that's why we have Balaam brought up in verse 11. That's why the word greed is mentioned. That's why the word reward is mentioned. They ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. They'll do anything to get ahead financially. Then we have Korah. Here it's Kor. Kori. C-O-R-E. Perished in the gainsaying of Cori. 
Korah is the one that came to Moses and said, Moses and Aaron, you take too much on you. Don't you know that we're holy brethren as well? Do you know how that hurt Moses? Moses was the meek. Did Moses ever want that stinking job? Did, he, did the Lord just about kill him for wanting to refuse that job? He did not want that job. Korah came to him and said, we're holy too, you know. You're not the, you take too much upon you. You're too high, Diotrephes. You're trying to get the preeminence in Israel. What about us? We're good guys too. We can get up and exhort the people. We can get up and lead them. Why are you doing it all? Moses, read about him. That made him sick. He said, I've never taken an ass from you people. I've never wanted this job. And the Bible puts, in, puts Holy Spirit narrative in there. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Amen. He had never wanted that position. But Korah. And so the Lord said, Moses, stand back. And I'll wipe this whole nation out. And we'll start over. Moses prays and says, don't judge the whole nation. Then the Lord said, tell everyone to get back from Korah then. If you're not going to let me take the whole nation down, we'll just take Korah and his wife and his kids and, and down. And then Moses said, if the, Lord, if the Lord hasn't spoken by me, then you're not about to see something new. But if you see something new, then the Lord has spoken by me, and I did not do this of my own accord. And the earth opened up her mouth. I wish Joel would take this text tonight. The earth opened up her mouth and swallowed them alive down into the grave. There was a little bit of screaming as the earth opened up and they fell and God buried them alive. You say the Humane Society doesn't allow that. The Geneva Convention doesn't allow that. God's never heard about either. Amen. When it comes to someone railing or gainsaying against his Moses, he opened the earth up. Fire came down from heaven and burned up 250 of them that were holding golden censers. The next day, the nation says, you've killed the people of the Lord. God kills 14,700 more in Numbers chapter 17 for them feeling sorry for Korah and his companions. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul warned the elders of Ephesus, I have warned you day and night with tears for three years that men will arise from among you and men are going to come in from the outside that are going to speak perverse things to get a following of themselves. I've warned you about it for three days, day, three years, day and night with tears. We read that recently in Acts chapter 20. This is that error. Gainsaying of Korah. It's mentioned very carefully. Gain, perished in the gainsaying. Gainsaying is when you bite, bite back, fight back, argue back, and disagree with someone in authority. And they disagreed with Moses. And so the Lord opened up the earth. These men are ambitious for offices God has not given them. God hadn't given Korah and his companions, the office that he had given Moses and Aaron. Aaron was a priest. The rest were Levites. Do you know what? Moses got so upset, he said, God made you eat Levites. The Levites got to serve about the tabernacle. They were near the presence of God. They just weren't priests. Within the tribe of Levi, you had those that descended from Aaron. They were the priests. The rest were the laborers. The rest were the deacons. Whatever you want to call that did the manual labor, but you're around the tabernacle of God. You got 10% of everything else that Israel ever earned. Now there were 12 other tribes. 
If all the tribes were equal, how much did Levi get of the total economy? 12%. What did they get compared to any other tribe? 120%. Didn't they get 10% of 12 tribes? So they were well taken care of. Why do you Levites want to be priests? You know what Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4 says? No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God. Jesus Christ didn't even call himself a priest. God swore with an oath in Psalm 110, I have made thee a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because no man takes the office to himself. You know, they want to say all the people have gifts and holiness. What about my gift? Well, your gift is to be a Levite, Korah. Be thankful for your gift and do your best at it. They criticize pastors trying to do their jobs, though they could not and would not do them themselves. They accuse ministers like Moses and Aaron. Though they were the sons of Levi, they were nothing in comparison to Moses. Moses was one special man prepared for that job. You know it and I know it. The first time God would have said to you, stand back and I'll burn them all up and start over with you, you'd have leaped backward. You'd have leaped backward and pulled out your marshmallows, graham crackers, and Nestle's chocolate bars so you could have had s'mores over the fire. Just like Jonah. Oh, yes, you would have. Just like Jonah. Jonah built himself a box seat. He didn't have to pay 35 bucks to sit in it either. He built himself a box seat, got his weenies out there, and was going to toast weenies over the burning up Nineveh. So I can say that about you, can I? If Jonah was guilty of it, can I say that about you? Moses was one great man. Remember the five men? Did Moses make the cut? Oh, yeah. Did he intercede for the people on a number of occasions? Yes. What a man. To open up your mouth against him, they got what they deserved, didn't they? The lesson. These men will be presumptuous. You know, there's men today so presumptuous they call themselves apostles. Do you know what category they put themselves in? With Peter, James, and John, and Paul. That's presumptuous. There are men today that call themselves... Do we have one in our city? We've got two at one church. They call themselves apostles. Why can't they be content with being a New Testament pastor? Disrespectful of God-given offices. We want to always esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, for the office God gave them. God doesn't give that office, nor those gifts to everyone. It's presumptuous pride, and we want to resent presumptuous pride when we see it, smell it in others, or when we see it or smell it in ourselves. God makes choices among men. He makes some fathers, He makes some husbands, He makes some civil magistrates, He makes some masters, He makes some pastors. God makes the choice. When Jesus Christ ascended up on high... He received gifts from God and He gave those gifts to men. He gave some apostles, some prophets, not all, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. That's God's choice and we don't fight against it. These are spots in our feasts of charity. They were in this church. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Verse 12 of Jude. They had no fear of God that would would control their conduct. But they were like Cain. They were like Balaam. They were like Korah. They weren't like the angels. They despised dominion. They spoke evil of dignities. They were loose sexually. They're spots. When men like this are allowed to stay in the church, 
They're spots. They corrupt us. They pollute us. We all know that we're sinners, but hopefully we confess our sins and repent of them. But when we allow men like Cain or Balaam or Korah to remain in a church, they pollute our worship of God. They're clouds without water, carried about of winds. When you're a farmer and you see clouds coming, do you know what you hope is in those clouds? Rain. Rain. To water your fields. But these are clouds that appear and you think they're going to have something good for us. But they don't because they're clouds without water. And they're tossed to and fro by a tempest, according to Second Peter 2.11. They're clouds that just boil around in the sky and never drop anything. But they're just being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, is what Ephesians 4.14 would say. Another metaphor. They're like trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. They're like trees. You look at a tree, you're hoping for fruit. There is none. What appears to be fruit doesn't pan out to be fruit. They never bring forth fruit to perfection, is the warning Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 8. So you want to measure men by their fruits. Is there fruit of the Spirit being shown in that life? You know what the number one fruit of the Spirit is? It's love of the brethren. Love of the brethren is the number one fruit in a Christian's life. What service do they do to others? How much compassion How much passion, how much empathy, how much sympathy do they have for the other children of God in the church relationship? Are they willing to sacrifice their little schedule? Are they willing to sacrifice their comfort zone? Are they willing to get out and go after others? They're trees whose fruit withereth. They never amount to much. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. More could be said in each phrase. Raging waves of the sea. Here's another metaphor. Foaming out their own shame. You know, when you see a wave a few feet from shore, it looks pretty powerful. It looks pretty intimidating. Here's this big cresting wave. But by the time it gets to your feet, it's nothing but a little bit of foam. Foaming out their own shame. This is God's description of these wicked men. They sure look impressive while they're, when they're out there at sea. But by the time they reach shore, where I have put a boundary for their activities, all they are is a little bunch of foam that you can step on. And pop the little soap bubbles. The little bubbles. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars. A wandering star is a no-good star. Sailors have set the course of their ships for millennia by watching fixed stars and knowing that the stars don't move. And so since I've got that star there... And that star there and a star here, by triangulation, I know exactly where I am. Fixed stars. But there are wandering stars. There's planets that appear to be as stars wandering among the stars because they move. Then there are comets. And there are meteors. A bright flash. You count on it for a minute, and then it's gone. Wandering stars. We want fixed, consistent, constant Christian lives. We want to be stable. Instability is a mark of a wicked man. We must be stable. Our feet must be fixed, trusting in the Lord, not changing. Not changing every three months. Not changing every six months. Not changing every three years. Not changing. A fixed star, not a wandering star. Are you a fixed star? Can everyone else in this church count on you that you will always be there and they can chart their course by your life? 
Lord, help us to be that. Wandering stars, and look what it says about them, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. To whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Elsewhere in the Bible, there's a lake of fire. None of you want to drown. Drowning is not fun. But drowning in a lake of fire is really not fun. That language by the Bible is very powerful. The lake of fire. But here it's not described as the lake of fire. It's described as the mist taken from uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. The blackness of darkness forever. How light is it? It's black. How light is it? It's dark. It's the blackness of darkness. How long does it last? Forever. How do you get there? You're reserved for it. Remember verse 4? Ordained of old, before of old to this condemnation. That is what God's going to do to the enemies of His church. Do you know what that means to us? It comforts us that God will take care of our enemies. And two, it ought to provoke us. I don't want any of the character traits that we've just covered. I don't want one single bit of them. And then the Apostle Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet. You didn't know that from reading Genesis. You didn't know it from reading Hebrews 11. But Jude, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that Enoch was a prophet and that long ago Enoch had prophesied of the coming judgment day. Isn't that something? That way before Abraham, before Noah, Enoch knew about the coming judgment day. And here's what he said. Verse 14, Behold! The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That is a prophecy from Enoch who was the seventh inclusive from Adam. When it says the seventh from Adam, don't try to count seven away from Adam. You've got to start with Adam. Seven inclusive. This is his prophecy. This prophecy is to fulfill and describe and fill out the last few words of verse 13, where it says, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Enoch knew about that, and here's the one that's going to do it. The coming Lord Jesus Christ is going to judge these enemies of the church. The Bible is full of God's warning of judgment against the enemies of His people. From the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. God protects His own. Touch not mine anointed. When a king of the Philistines and a king of Egypt took Sarah's wife, they weren't allowed to touch her. Touch not mine anointed and do my holy ones no harm. God judged the nations of Canaan. God judged Egypt for being hard taskmasters to Israel. God judged Nebuchadnezzar for taking them captive. God judged the Assyrians from opening their mouths against Israel, though God used them as a chastening rod. God will always protect His people. Ananias and Sapphiraists fall down dead. The abusers of the Lord's Supper at the church at Corinth fell down dead. God will preserve His people. And God has done so. And Enoch describes the coming judgment. Brethren, these men are murmurers, verse 16 tells us. Let's not murmur. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Do all things without murmurings. Murmurings is to complain. It's just to grumble. It's to mumble against things. Well, what about this? And just to complain and, and get down and dirty and moan and groan and complain about stuff. These are murmurers, complainers. 
walking after their own lusts. Let's not have any of those traits. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words. We don't want great swelling words. We want certain words of truth. Just plain yeas and nays about truth. And they have men's persons in admiration because of advantage. They show a respect of persons. We do not want to show a respect of persons. In our judgment in this church, it should always be totally fair. We always want to be fair. That doesn't mean we're always forgiving. That doesn't mean we're always compromising. That doesn't mean we're overlooking. That means we're always fair. The way we treat one is the way we treat another that's guilty of the same or similar sin. These men weren't that way. And they had men's persons in advantage because of that. They would show respect of persons in order to take advantage of those that could do more for them. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ would say that when you're going to go out to eat, who, should, who you should take? Take the halt, the lame, and the blind. Because they can't repay you, and I'll repay you at the resurrection. That's right. We want to spread our care throughout the whole church. We don't want to gravitate to just a few. We want to love all. We want to care for all. We want to provoke all. But these men go after the rich because they want them for the advantage they can gain from them. You know what James would say about that? Why in the world do you want to help the rich? They're the ones that call you before the magistrates and try to destroy your faith. James would say, has not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Those are the ones you want to take care of. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul would say to Timothy, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without any partiality. 1 Timothy 5.21 This is the word of the Lord. What have we learned from it today? These are character traits of the wicked. We want to be able to identify in others so that we can be forewarned of coming trouble, and we don't want to have any of these traits in ourselves. Right. We don't want to show respect of persons. Let's just back up. We don't want to show respect of persons. We don't want to use pompous language. We just want to use yea and nay and the certain words of truth. We don't want to be complainers. We don't want to follow our own lusts. We don't want to be murmurers. We want to have fruitful lives and not be fruitless trees. We don't want to be wandering stars. We want to be consistent, constant Christians. Men can count on us because we're always going to be there. We're always going to trust in the Lord. Our feet are fixed, trusting in the Lord. We don't want to be like Korah and gainsay anyone in authority, whether it's a parent, a husband, a pastor, a master, or a civil ruler. We don't want to be like Balaam, where we're greedy for gain. We don't want to be like Cain, self-willed and wanting to do things our way. We don't want to despise dominion or speak evil of dignities. We want to remember the angels like Michael that would not bring a railing accusation even against the devil. We don't want to despise dominion. We want to love it. And we want to hate sexual compromise in this wicked generation. May the Lord God of heaven bless us to remember all these lessons of the harsh book of Jude. And remember that if we're caught in this number... If we're caught in this number, to us is reserved the mist of the blackness of darkness forever. Little buddy, if you've told a lie, you're going to see the fire of hell without the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Little pretty girl, you want to play around with casual sex? You're going to see the fire of hell without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells me that the lake of fire will have all liars in it. And all whoremongers and all adulterers and all idolaters are in the lake of fire, which is the mist of blackness of darkness forever without a Savior. But brethren, we have a reservation made for us too. 
For those of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ and love righteousness, there is another reservation that's been made. It's reserved in heaven for you. It doesn't fade. It doesn't pass away. It's our eternal reward in heaven. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is greater than I can describe to you. But I hope by reading those three songs last night and thinking about the mist of darkness forever, do you know what heaven is like? There is no, there is no darkness or night there. Because the Lamb is the glory of that place. What a difference. And do you know who made that difference? The grace of a sovereign God. Amen. Having chosen us in Christ before the world began. Right. I've been a perfect child, a perfect husband. I've submitted perfectly to my pastors, masters, and the government. Because Jesus Christ did it for me. He's forgiven me all my sins. And we want to celebrate all that in our second assembly. Amen. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then add to that faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. For if you do these things, you'll never fall into that reservation of the mist of blackness of darkness forever. Amen.